How's it going, scorekeepers? Welcome to episode six of Minnesota Opera's podcast, The Score. On this week's episode, we've all got our Fauci ouchies and the world is starting to open again. What does that mean for the arts and our sanity? Then we're joined by Minnesota Opera's Associate Director of Public Programs, Pablo Siqueiros, who gives us the lowdown on the exciting things coming out of our impact department, before joining us for a fun little game. And there's a cannon! And then, of course, as always, we'll send you off into the weekend with a PB&J, a moment of pure black joy. You know what time it is. It's time to check the score. Let's do it to it. six of the score minnesota opera's podcast about classical music and opera and the issues affecting people of color therein i am rocky jones director of edi at minnesota opera i'm here with my friends and colleagues the wonderful lee bynum hello lee how are you i'm well hello america <laughs> and Paige reynolds what's up girl how you doing oh i'm doing good how you doing good good how are you feeling you know so much better than i was yesterday that <laughs> okay. is for sure so, i was so, going so Paige through got it. her yes you were oh my god Paige got her second shot and it was uh yeah. Brought. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in all of it, I was just like, you know what? This isn't nearly as bad as probably like actually having coronavirus. So I'm not even gonna. I'm I'm not even gonna be all dramatic about it. But I did have some reactions, oh. some trials and tribulations. Uh. Um, oh my god. <laughs> And I feel so guilty because, like, I guess I got mine, like, well, it was over two weeks ago now because I can technically leave the house even though I don't. Um, (laughs) And, like, my second shot, I mean, it hurt, but, like, I still, like, worked out and lived my life and was normal and... I guess I was a little bit more tired than usual the next day. So I was just like, oh, y'all, it's fine. Don't worry about it. And you both had, like, adverse reactions. Well, I will say this. I will say that it passed by really fast. Like, the worst of it happened in, like, 12 hours. So, like, I woke up with, like, a slight fever yesterday and... Just felt like really fatigued and that all over like muscle achy feeling that you get when you're sick or especially when you have like a Mm -hmm. fever or flu or something. But then by about by like 3, 4 p.m. I was fine. Sorry for the noise in the background. That's my dog. Um, (laughs) 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 um, But yeah, so it it wasn't it wasn't that bad. It was it was quick. It was just feeling really crappy for a really short amount of time. Yeah. Yeah, that's well, you know, really unfortunate. It is, it is. But, you know, in the end, it'll all be worth it. Exactly. <laughs> it yes. seems like there's some light at the end of the tunnel. We can end this pancake breakfast, <laughs> panorama pancetta. <laughs> I'm over it. <laughs> and even though, like, I mean, I'm a bit of, like, an an 
extroverted introvert, I guess ambivert. <laughs> so it's like, I would prefer to be at home in my basement, um, unless like I absolutely have to be, and then like I, I'm cool. But like, I'm just like, I'm so done. I'm yeah. so over it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I miss yeah. the like, world. Yeah. I just want to, like, even just like, like the idea of like, ooh, getting on a bus and going to my office. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> How exciting. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly that. So um, Damien and I, my husband and I had our second shots on Friday. He, of course, was completely fine. I was laid out after mine. But we finally just like went on a walk yesterday just to the ATM um, we don't really live near an ATM so it was actually something of a lengthy walk but it was the first time since we moved here that we actually were like outside we didn't have masks on we were comfortable moving around and just like got to see the area in which we now live I got to take some pictures since I didn't have a mask on I was smiling at people people were smiling <laughs> back it was really really nice and when I got home from the, the little walk yesterday evening, I was like, I like miss being in the world. And mm-hmm. and I too am an, an introvert and I think of myself as an introverted introvert. Like I, I you know, enjoy people, especially in small groups, but I, I'm not like a, a big room full of people kind of a person, which requires me to stretch a lot in my professional life. And when the pandemic started, I was as happy as a pig in slop. Like the the <laughs> fact that I could just mm-hmm. be at home all the time, yes, no one was coming over, no Amen. one was asking me to go anywhere. Preach. I was, I was so happy. <laughs> yes. And then, you know, like 16 months later, you're like, oh, okay, well, you know, I'd love to be outside and get some of that oxygen that everybody's been talking about. It's so good to just like leave our house yesterday and I, I think I'm going to leave my house again sometime in the next few days. So this might be my new thing going places. I'll tell oh, you how it goes. Look at you. <laughs> fancy. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so funny because my husband is an essential worker so he's been going to work this entire time. Um, oh, which nice. has, well, which has been just a um, an emotional minefield, especially yeah. at the beginning of the pandemic. Um but, you know, obviously I trust him that he is safe and taking all the necessary precautions. And he actually believes that COVID-19 is a real thing <laughs> <laughs> and does not want to bring it home. Um, but it's so funny because it's like he's so used to being out in the world and just like, you know, taking all the necessary precautions to be out in the world. So it's like when I leave the house like every two weeks to like maybe go to like Costco or Target or something, he'll just like look at me and I'll just be like looking out the window like, oh, look, look over there. (laughs) Look at that tree. It's blooming. Oh my goodness. (laughs) They have a a new plant in their front yard. Oh my God. And he's like, it's like a dog like looking out the window. (laughs) Yeah, who knew a year in the house would like have this effect literally on all of us? Like, I, I think so many of us are going to feel like different versions of ourselves in the next couple of months. And I can only imagine the misadventures of being back in the office in, in every conceivable direction. I, I think that's going to be like a type of sensory overload that I'm probably not ready for. 
in this mm-hmm. exact moment. I yeah. mean, this summer, Paige, if I were your age, <laughs> it'd be over. <laughs> you know what? There's a part of me that's just like, yes, hot girl summer is on. But then there's another part of me that just like sounds like it's like wow that just sounds overwhelming honestly like i need to ease back in to being with people again for real. <laughs> i mean yeah especially like a large crowd like if i if i think of something like the like bars i was going to before or you know you go out dancing or concerts and now the thought of that it, though it it's kind of exciting. It's also a little bit anxiety inducing. Like, ooh, yeah. being around that many people, like who could yeah. potentially be touching me or be near me in my bubble when it's been just us in my house. Yeah, I have to ease into it. I have to ease into it. <laughs> Absolutely, because it was it was weird. It was like beforehand, it was like we had sort of desensitized ourselves to the idea of sort of like, you know, because before it was just like you know. Oh, well, if I get on the bus, I might get the flu or someone might shoot me. Um, (laughs) And we we kind of got like desensitized to that. And now it's just like, it's like this electric, like, like I just sort of have like an exposed nerve. (laughs) And it's like every time I go outside, it starts to tingle. But speaking of large crowds, you know, governors all over the country um, are beginning to loosen those restrictions. And... You know, a, that's a big part of that. It's it's going to affect the arts and we're going to yeah. have live performance again. We yeah. already know in May, um, Broadway shows um, in New York will be opening at limited capacity. They'll be able to go to full capacity in September. We know that Wicked, The Lion King, Hamilton have already announced that they will be going um full capacity on september 14th here in the twin cities um the minnesota orchestra um will be doing live concerts in june um the guthrie will open up to the public um pretty soon in a few weeks and they will be having live performances again um in the fall and of course you know we at minnesota opera we're planning things which we will tell you about i'm sure in a few weeks so stay tuned (laughs) (laughs) But with all of this opening and, and the arts opening up again, you know, how are you all all feeling and reacting to that? It, it seems like it's all just sort of happening at once, like the way, like, you know, a garden will just be dormant all winter and then all of a sudden it's in full bloom. It's it's kind of wild. It, it really is. And I'm, I, I'm also curious and I, I want to hear from you in particular, Paige, because I know that you aren't just a, a lover of theater, but you are also a maker of theater. And, and how are you thinking about this moment where, you know, you must have been so eager to be able to put yourself in a situation again where you could be on stage, be on front of people, share what it is that you do? Is this exciting or is this also anxiety inducing? It's it's a mix of everything, honestly. I mean, it's I I am excited to be able to share space with people again in any kind of performing arts setting, whether I am performing or <laughs> stage manager or just watching something or whatever. Just like there's 
there's just like something that can only be like translated through being there and in person and sharing space at the same time. Um, so I'm just excited for that experience again. But I think I and I can probably speak for a lot of other theater makers are, I mean, anxious about just the COVID safety of course, mm-hmm. but then ha- wondering like, has anybody internalized any of the lessons <laughs> of yeah. the past yeah. Ye- um, yeah. more than a year now? Yeah. Um, yeah, or are we just like everyone's rushing to open up and just get butts in seats again and go on with business as usual? That like I'm not e- <laughs> excited <laughs> about. <laughs> um, or I, uh, I, I won't say not excited about, but I, I, I guess a little, um, hmm, possibly cynical, skeptical, mm-hmm. <laughs> skeptical mm-hmm. of, yeah. yeah, with good reason. Yeah, I would say. absolutely good reason. You're not wrong. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, I think that the thing that's complicated, right? And and I feel like we learned a lot about how Americans think and how Americans relate to their perceptions of what our freedoms are, right? Um, in, in this time and, and where people are in terms of thinking about what their personal responsibility is and what they should be doing. And, and that's also driving a lot of my nervousness. I am super excited to, at the possibility of being able to like, go into work and meet a group of co-workers I've had for the last eight months but never like <laughs> seen in person kind of a thing like there are lots of pieces that are super exciting to me and then at the same time we keep having new surges because people I, I, I feel like I'm about to sound like somebody's grandparent or something but like people are given an inch and then they suddenly take a mile right and, and aren't mm. being very thoughtful about how we have to ease back into this and the choices we have to make and the fact that, yeah, we we're dealing with something. It's like this once a century kind of natural disaster and we do have to change our behavior. We have to change our thinking. We may not ever go back to being able to behave in some of the ways we did in the <laughs> before times, right? And I think that's a very complicated Thing. And, and I might have mentioned on this podcast, I know I've mentioned to the two of you, that when all of this started in, I guess, December of 2019, my husband was working in Hong Kong and I was going back and forth quite a bit between New York and, and Asia and seeing the differences in how people were taking some of the government regulations in Singapore and Hong Kong and Seoul in particular and the differences in how people interpreted those here. I think says a lot about how it is that we managed to have what like four different waves like four distinct waves i remember a moment last year in new york when it seemed like we had gotten out of the worst of it so because it was new york everybody's natural response was hey it's time for house parties and block parties and then we had another wave of it right Mm. so that's the little bit that i'm nervous about and i love my fellow new yorkers but i also know their behavior so when I saw that theaters and whatnot were opening in New York, you, you know, like there was a very cynical set of thoughts that I had about, you know, we'll, we'll see how long this can last. But hopefully after so much time and with the vaccine and maybe with people being ready 
to enact a different set of behaviors, this won't be what it has been in the past. Yeah, I mean, I hear you. And I just feel like, you know, there are so many lessons that we learned during the past 16 mm-hmm. months. And I am just so fascinated to see how they will be sort of operationalized um, you know, on all levels, really, of our society, because it's like, like you said, you look at Asia, and, you know, the reason they reacted so swiftly, and, you know, were so prepared was because they went through, you know, SARS a few years ago, and they were just like, okay, well, here's all this technology that we created in the aftermath of that. Okay, here are all the things that we didn't do right the first time. And also just like, generally of just like their culture is just about like well let's like take care of each other and it's not like this weird sort of individual like you know libertarian nonsense that (laughs) (laughs) we have over here it's like like actually like our citizens have a right to be healthy and live and we all have a responsibility to make sure that you know everybody doesn't get this like poison breath disease right. um, <laughs> so you know and 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 just so many lessons that we've learned where we just sort of took for granted for decades that like well like we get up at like six o'clock in the morning and get in our cars or get on public transport and go to this building no matter like if we have a cold or you know, whatever, and we go and we just sort of sit at these desks for eight hours, make ourselves look busy, especially, like, if we only have, like, four hours worth of work to do, and then, like, we go home and we're tired and we're stressed out and we've been bombarded with all of these people's energy all day, when it's like, no, actually, we could just, like, sit in our houses and we all, you know, have the internet and, well, most of us um, have the, well, I shouldn't say that, but um, those of us who are lucky enough to have (laughs) those of us who are lucky to have the Internet, have the Internet um, and are able to, you know, work from home um, in a number of different fields. Of course, there are a number of, you know, essential workers who have to leave the house. I happen to live with one. And so we need to figure out, obviously, an equitable solution for them as well. But, you know. I think our relationship to the way that we work in this country, this sort of like Puritan work ethic where it's just like we have to like constantly, constantly be like toiling and hustling and struggling and there's no room for rest or relaxation or meditation, which is where all of the good ideas and all of the good art comes from when we're able to just sort of like rest our bodies for 10 seconds. Um, So, you know, that's something that I hope comes out of this, like a, a, a deeper respect for just sort of our fellow man and like Mm -hmm. everyone's right to live and everyone's, you know, especially our elders, um, you know, taking care of them, like the, just the way that we, you know, I, every, every time I think about it, I get the chills because like, you know, maybe 20 years ago when I was 20, 
like I wasn't thinking about like retirement. It was like I'm gonna be young forever. I'm gonna live forever. Four hundred one k. No, get that away from me. That's numbers and math, and I don't want to do that. <laughs> I'll do that in a few years when I'm old. And like now, I'm just like ah, and just like thinking about like the way that like capitalism is chugging along and like gaining more and more momentum, and it's getting just more and more just like lethal. Just thinking about like mm-hmm. our elderly and like when someday like us millennials are gonna get there and it's just like well what 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 is the place for us in that system like what happens when like this system has no use for us anymore and like you know at the beginning of the pandemic you had like politicians like coming out and being like well you you know you know you should sacrifice your life for your grandchildren no these are (laughs) elders like what's wrong with you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I just I, I just hope that like and it doesn't seem like you know this is kind of you know pie in the sky because like you look at what just sort of happened today alone in Congress mm-hmm. with Liz Cheney mm-hmm. like like no no we're, we're you know lies and, and truthiness and all of that <laughs> is still <laughs> still a big part of our our you know sort of political societal ecosystem and you know i'm still very very scared for 2022 and 2024 and who knows what's gonna happen all of a sudden it's just like nope like republicans are in power covid for everyone (laughs) 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 but i just i just hope that there are enough of us who like lived through this and like allowed ourselves to feel the fear, allowed ourselves to feel the anger, allowed ourselves to really open our eyes to just how COVID has just revealed the cracks in every, every single segment of our society, every single, just from politics to religion to, to everything. (laughs) And and I hope that we can all just sort of like sit with that, believe it, and then get together and just sort of act collectively. Um, so that's my hope. I now I now I'm rambling. So somebody stop me. Not, not <laughs> rambling. I, I think it was a a beautiful wish for the future, and I I hope we can all kind of take a little piece of that and hold on to it as. We watch all of the tomfoolery happening right now in Congress because oh that's it's exactly just, what it it's... is. But like, but Matt Gates, he's cool. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I, it, it boggles my mind. But <laughs> well, thank you for that, Lee. I appreciate that. That was very kind, and I do hope that you know. Yes, yes, it is a nice wish, um, and I hope that. Uh, that it comes true (laughs) but we've got a we've got much much more show to get to we've got a special guest coming up we've got a game that we're gonna play which is super exciting and of course we've got pure black joy so stay tuned we'll be right back (laughs) 
All right, scorekeepers, welcome back. We are now joined by our very special guest, Yay. Mr. Pablo Siqueiros. Yay. Hello, sir. Hello, everyone. How are you? I feel so honored <laughs> that you guys had me on your podcast. Oh, well, we're honored that you said yes. <laughs> Yesterday. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> So one thing that we kind of realize is that like one thing that like, I mean, we talk about like the state of the world and the state of the arts and ah, all this heady stuff, but like we don't really like talk about like our jobs that much, which are actually like super fascinating. And I think so many people when like, you know, I say like, I'm the director of equity, diversity and inclusion in the impact department at Minnesota Opera. People are like, huh? What are those words? You too? Yeah, yeah, totally. Oh, yeah. Well, I can imagine like for everyone, right? Oh, yeah. It's definitely like a, I, that sounds cool. I don't really know what it means, but good for you. Like, <laughs> like oh, you're fancy. Right. <laughs> or to reference a past episode, it's just so important. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, precisely. Exactly. Because it's important. So important. <laughs> and so, you know, Pablo is the Associate Director of Public Programs here at Minnesota Opera. And so we just want, and he's also our friend. Aww. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so we just wanted to bring him on and just like talk about some of like the cool stuff that we're doing at Impact, some of the cool stuff that's going on at Minnesota Opera, especially in the next couple of months mm -hmm. as we begin to bloom and open up to the world <laughs> post panorama <laughs> um and so thank you so much for being here again absolutely absolutely yeah i'm excited to, to chat with you guys about this so pablo first question for you mm -hmm. what does an associate director of public programs do? <laughs> <laughs> well i'm still trying to answer that myself um so for those of you who don't know, um, I think out of the four of us, I'm, I think I'm the only one that was in the previous iteration of what the department was, and it's uh, when it was just a department uh, of education. Um, so my my position before I came to uh, be the public programs associate director was teaching artist, um, and that meant a lot of things um, at that time. I mean, it it could mean that I was uh, teaching in schools. It could be teaching at uh, senior communities. It could be doing um, pre-performance lectures. It would be managing all of these programs, uh, doing residencies and a lot of administrative work. And on top of that, being a part of the diversity council as well. And all of these things that kind of pulled me in a lot of different directions. And um, when Minnesota Opera made this move to create a new department, which is now Impact, um, a few of those responsibilities kind of shifted around for me um, in that I kept some of those programs, primarily the adult education programs. Um, so things that, uh, you know, I still work with uh, our older adult communities, I'll still be in charge of 
doing the the pre-performance lectures whenever we return to in-person performances but in the meantime it's been a lot of uh, videos and interviews and those kinds of things just to give folks more information and more context around um, each of the performance offerings that we have um, but a new thing that uh, has not existed in I don't think any position uh, at the opera was kind of uh, this accessibility side of things. Um, so really trying to address um, accessibility needs for for the company kind of as a whole, which is a, a kind of a daunting task. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, thinking about um, who who can access our performances, who can access our programs, who can access our physical spaces, um, our activities, who can be on staff, and what are we requiring them to do, and all of these different things that um, it, it's a lot of perspectives to try to put yourself in. Um, but it's been a huge, huge learning opportunity. Um, and something that I, that I do think um, is kind of long overdue um, in the arts in general. Oh, absolutely. For, for sure. And to your point about the, the very long um, learning arc that I think very many of us are on, and, and I think you've been like incredibly game for it, right? And that's been inspiring to me as a co-worker of yours to see how you just rushed head first into this and really taken the mantle on of this responsibility and, and really learning what this means and what it can be in this context. So could you say just a little bit more about how we think about access at Minnesota Opera? What does it cover? Because it is more than just the the physical spaces, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, thinking about, um, like I said, you know, who, who can be a part of our programs um, and kind of what, what environments are we building, both physical and digital? Um, obviously, this last year, most of our activities were uh, in the digital virtual space. Um, so how are we thinking about building those spaces with uh, different abilities uh, in mind, um, thinking about um, socioeconomic accessibility, language accessibility. Um, obviously, we, we live in uh, a pair of cities that are incredibly culturally diverse, and there's a lot of different languages spoken uh, in this area. So how are we thinking about um, communicating information to folks um, in a way that the most amount of people will be able to understand them? Uh, so kind of thing, th those are just a few things that are kind of coming to mind. And, you know, can I ask, because this is, you know, one of the reasons I think that you are such a, a strong person to do this kind of work is that your experiences in the opera have been varied. So could you say a little <laughs> bit about what it's meant both as an educator and as a singer now to occupy a role like this? I almost thought you said, <laughs> can you sing a little bit? And I was like, we didn't ask him to do that. <laughs> Thank you for not asking Sorry. me to do that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just direct everybody straight to iTunes and you can pick up Pablo's <laughs> latest CD out, Access for All. 
Actually, actually, another one of our coworkers one time, Eric, we were thinking about starting a podcast where we just would invite singers on and just unexpectedly make them sing all their answers. And we were going to call it, don't make me sing. Don't make me sing. But anyway, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Keep going. Keep I just going. got like triggered to like family reunions when all, all of your aunts and uncles are like, can you please sing? It's like, no, oh, no. please don't. No, 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 no. no don't no, make no, no, me. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm, oh, I'm not warmed up. No. <laughs> right, <good>. right. <laughs> I guess I'm the only one who, when I get asked that, like I routinely just like park and bark like immediately <laughs> slide into a old nasty rendition of everything's coming up roses so don't ever Do you ask really me. oh frequently i because i love singing and i don't have it in my professional function to do it anymore so when someone is like oh blah 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 blah, i'm like oh 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 every single time i love it are you kidding <laughs> See, I only have to, I only do it when I, when I feel like I have to, like I'm in, waiting in the wings on the stage and somebody like puts a shot of vodka down my throat and pushes me and then something <laughs> clicks in my brain and Sasha Fierce happens. But like, other than that, no, do, oh, don't sorry. ask me to I'm do that. always <laughs> tipsy in these stories. I thought that was obvious. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. There you go. Okay. That makes much okay. more sense. That makes much more sense. <laughs> Anyway, what was the question? Yeah. <laughs> Slightly <laughs> sidetracked. <laughs> um, oh, were you, so you were asking me about um, yeah, my, my varied experiences the... in opera? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I started off really wanting to pursue... Well, actually, if I take it even further back, um, I originally wanted to be a choir director before mm. I wanted to be a uh, singer. Um, so education has always sort of been in, uh, something that I wanted to be involved with in some capacity. Um, I had a really great choir experience in high school. Um, and afterwards, you know, I kind of stayed on volunteering for the choir programs. And so that was very much like something that was in my mind. Of course, at that time, I didn't realize that, uh, people could sing for a living. Um, so once that sort of entered my consciousness, I was like, ooh, shiny object. <laughs> I want to do that instead. Um, and and I was very much on, on that track, you know, did the grad, like undergrad and grad school in that, um, went straight ahead into a, a young artist program um, at a company in Milwaukee. And... It wasn't until I kind of got a taste of like what quote unquote full time uh, singing career was that I was like, oh, this isn't actually what I want. <laughs> um, and part of the reason was, you know, when when my livelihood dependent on my singing, that took the fun out of singing uh, entirely. Absolutely. Um, and. And really, when, once you take the fun out of singing, then it's, you know, you kind of lose this, this thing that you've cherished for a really long time. Um, and so another, another aspect of it that, that um, kind of shifted my mindset a little bit was I kind of saw the, that there was a big gap in between what happens in the rehearsal room with artists and with all the uh, creative teams and all of that versus what happens in the administrative offices um, and who's actually making the decisions and who has uh, the power in the company. 
mm. and who doesn't. And it, it was very eye-opening to me um, to kind of see those dynamics play out, especially once I got into um, administration on the education side of things and kind of saw how a lot of the things that really I was only seeing the tip of the iceberg as an artist, um, how all of those things actually came together and seeing like, whoa, there's there's some issues here. <laughs> One or two. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so in, in that first sort of um, administrative experience that I had for two years in that same company where I was a young artist, um, I was the only person of color on staff, um, which was a very interesting experience and not, mm. not one that I was really ever able to um, verbalize out loud in that space of like, hey, actually, like some of what you're doing is not okay because mm. of this, because I was the only voice for that perspective. Yeah. Um, so that, that actually almost took me away from the opera industry entirely. Uh, once mm. I moved to the Twin Cities, um, I really didn't think that I was going to work in opera again. Um, and it was only sort of by chance that uh, I happened to get coffee with someone who was the teaching artist before me, and she ended up getting a new job, and it was like, things just kind of aligned in a way where I got sucked back into it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I do think because Minnesota Opera... um, is a it, it's a very different company than than the one that I was working with, at before, and not to say that it doesn't have a lot of similar issues, but I feel like here at least folks seem to be more open to at least working on it. <laughs> uh, so I, I I do find that um, while at times um, it can certainly be challenging to to work in a predominantly um, white institution in a predominantly white industry. Um, I see sort of like little inches of growth here and there that it's like, okay, like I, I guess I should keep working on this. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just curious, I mean, what are some of the things that you've seen that are causing you to, you know, those little, those little inches of growth? <laughs> I mean, just thinking about in, in, the, in the last three plus years that I've been a part of the diversity council with you all, um, I mean, we, we've done some things. We've, <laughs> um, you know, we, we revamped the diversity charter. Um, we've implemented some practices around, like, how do we gather feedback from folks? Um, so little things that, that to, to maybe outsiders uh, or people who are are in our audience they might not necessarily see them right away um because it's not maybe always happening on on the stage um or different things are happening on the stage than what we're doing sort of behind the scenes um it's one of those things that i just like okay and and it makes me appreciate um working with you all um, because I, I, I certainly feel like unlike in my last, uh, company, 
I'm not the only one who's invested in this. <laughs> <laughs> and just quick plug, mnopera.org slash EDI if you want to learn more. <laughs> <laughs> so can I, can I ask um, about that? Because, you know, as our listeners know, prior to my time at Minnesota Opera, I worked in a completely different industry, at least for my full-time job anyway. I'm curious if there are ways that you see the entire industry trending a little bit more to being responsive to EDI and access issues? Or do you feel like it's more happening in pockets or with specific individuals? Like maybe this is a thing being driven by performers or writers, composers. I don't know. What What are your, your perspectives on that? Um, It's interesting because I do feel like I mean, it's hard to make an assessment on what other companies are are doing sort of behind the scenes for the same reason that I just mentioned, you know, that outsiders might not know what exactly we're doing behind the scenes. Um, but I do feel like this this particular year was kind of a game changer in terms of um, artists finding their own voice. Mm. Um, I feel like because everyone's employment kind of went away... Um, institutions were not really able to hold that over their heads in terms of silencing opinions. Because mm. mm. um, I do feel like yeah. that that's for so many people, they're like, I don't want to speak up. I don't want to say anything. I don't want to cause any trouble because my job depends on it. My future contract depends on it. And in as singers... You know, you're just going from contract to contract. So, like, when your performance ends in three to four weeks, you're out of a job again. So, you you almost can't afford to um, be considered by some as problematic or hard to work with or anything like that or be perceived in that way for speaking up for yourself or for your values or any of that. But when there was nobody working and there were no contracts, all of a sudden it ju- you just kind of see artists actually start speaking up a little bit more mm-hmm. um, and speaking up for themselves and speaking on the inequities of the industry and all of these things that maybe before they weren't able to speak on. So how can... Sorry to be asking you so many questions, but I guess this is an interview, right? Um, <laughs> it feels like a regular conversation. Okay. <laughs> you're, you're doing just fine. So um, how... What can we do, those of us who are administrators or those of us who are audience members, what can we do to give a better platform to artists in particular sort of register their opinions on these sorts of things. I, I follow lots of singers and composers and creatives on Twitter and Instagram um, because I am interested in hearing these perspectives that I don't think always make it to the places where decisions are happening. So do you have a perspective on what it is the rest of us can do around those issues? Yeah, I mean, I do think a, a big thing is is kind of listening to these people as individuals. Um, so whether that's, you know, following their their artist um, social media accounts or things like that. Um, one of the things that I really wanted to focus on this year, which we haven't really done a, a whole lot of uh, in the past. Um, so we did our artists offstage 
web series, which was interviews with each of the resident artists. Um, and one thing that I was really wanting to get out of those was actually just to get to know them as people, um, probably more, maybe more so than the work that they do for the company. Um, because the, a lot more stuff comes out in those types of conversations um, than when you're just asking them to give their thoughts on the next production that they're going to be in. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I'm just, to be honest, I'm, I'm so tired of hearing interviews with artists where it's just like, what's your favorite role? And, you know, <laughs> tell us your most embarrassing onstage story. Like, okay, like, you're not getting to know them at all as an individual or what what they believe what they're passionate about what their what their life is like outside of the rehearsal room or outside of the performance on stage um i do feel like we need to give a, a bigger platform to that part of the artist um equally or sometimes even more so than than what they're going to be doing on a particular performance. Mm -hmm. mm, I love that. So, you know, I know that you have been working on, on these, you know, interviews, these podcasts all year. Where are, uh, where can people find those if they want to, um, to listen? Yeah. Or watch. Um, so a lot of the, a lot of these interviews will, will be posted on um, our Instagram, our Facebook page, uh, YouTube channel, um, pretty much in any of those, you can just search Minnesota Opera or MN Opera and stuff should come up. Um, I'm also doing another podcast for our creative aging program, Opera Connections. Uh, you can find that on SoundCloud. Um, if you just search Minnesota Opera on there, uh, some stuff should come up. Uh, whether that's uh, the podcast that we just did. It's six episodes on Albert Herring. Previously, it was like 10 episodes on Don Giovanni. And uh, you can find some behind-the-curtain uh, interviews with Andy Whitfield, our chorus master. So there's a lot of things to listen to that are kind of educational and things like that. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. Like a lot to dive in and binge. <laughs> <laughs> if you will, just like hear me ramble on about what I think about certain operas, you know, just go, go listen to that. <laughs> well, we might hear a little bit more coming oh, up. Yeah. But <laughs> I do want to just make sure that we create some space because, you know, I think one thing we haven't said yet, you know, it's just specifically that, you know, the impact department at Minnesota Opera encompasses our education programs, our community engagement programs, as well as our equity, diversity and inclusion programs. And so, you know, in the next few months, you know, we've got stuff coming up. Mm -hmm. So I just want to make some space. What's going on? What should people know? <laughs> what can people participate in or see or watch or do or? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the one of the big things that is coming up is all of our summer camps and workshops and things of that nature. Um, so if you have, uh, you know, kids that are in middle school, high school, college, uh, there, there's something for everybody there. Um, one thing that I find, and, and this is sort of tying back to an earlier question of, like, how, how we approach this work um, I think one of the big things that is really important to um, key in on in terms of the shift from 
being solely an education department to impact uh, and education being a part of that is that it really does shift our approach from we are the holders of knowledge and we are here to impart you and enlighten you uh, with all of this information. Um, and whatever happens beyond that is none of our business to not, and not to say that that is exactly how we did things before. That is not how we did it. But I think impact really kind of flips the script a little bit in terms of um, what change do we actually want to see in the community and how are we building our programs to match that, um, which is just a, a very different approach to how we've done things before. Right. And if, if I could just add to that piece, because I, I love how you, you phrase that, Pablo, and I feel like one of the things that in my head is different about an impact department and an education department is I think of this as being much more of a series of partnerships with communities around what it is that they want to see in terms of education and programming and instead of kind of thinking about what it is that we're doing simply as attendant to what's mm -hmm. happening on the main stage. Absolutely. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And so I always say this, but like we wanna hear from you as well because like that change in, in the community that we all wanna see, y'all are the community. So make <laughs> sure that you get in touch with us, the score at mnopera.org um, and let us know what's going on and how we can be of service. So thank you so much, Pablo. I hope that was painless. Totally painless. <laughs> Just like vaccines. Well, <laughs> totally uh, painless. Uh, well, <laughs> well, you weren't here for the last segment. Oh. <laughs> yeah, there, we, we got into that a little bit. Um, but coming up, we're going to play a game. Do you want to join us, Pablo? I'd love to. Yay! Yay okay. <laughs> All right, well, we will be right back, and we are going to play a game, an opera game. Yay! <laughs> All right, we're back with a brand new segment. It's either going to be in Paige's words, super fun, or a hot mess. We'll see how this goes. <laughs> I, I'm going to predict some sort of combination of the two, but we want to play a little game um, where, you know, we sort of look at, well, here, let me start with a controversial statement. Um, there are operas in the canon that are problematic. What? I know. <laughs> Have you heard? <laughs> I have no idea. I don't know if you heard. Um but, you know, one of the big, you know, sort of questions um, that has plagued Minnesota opera especially, but I think opera companies around the world, is, you know, how do you continue to perform these more problematic offerings in the canon um, and do it in a way um, that feels responsible? in 2021 that doesn't feel actively harmful. And that is not to say that every single opera in the world is problematic. Obviously, that's not the case. Um, but there are some that, like, a lot of opera houses like to perform a lot that, like, aren't awesome. <laughs> so... <laughs> 
we wanted to sort of figure out, take some operas and figure out if we could figure out a way that we can perform these operas in 2021 that align with the values of anti-racism, anti-oppression. Maybe we can, maybe we can't, but all I know is it's time to play Fire That Cannon! I'm your host, Rocky Jones, and I'm here with three fantastic contestants, Lee, Paige, and Pablo. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks. It's great to be here, Rocky. (laughs) (laughs) So excited to have you. So let's move really quick to our first opera. So today's first opera is Madama Butterfly, Mm. composed by Mm. Giacomo Puccini, libretto by Luigi Ilica and Giuseppe Giacosa, written in 1904. Madama Butterfly tells the story of uh, 19th century Japan. An American Navy officer named Pinkerton marries a 15-year-old girl named Chocho San. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just kind of hangs in the air, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> okay. Never intending to take his vows seriously, so f boy, he leaves. Uh, <laughs> he leaves his butterfly behind, promising to return. When he does finally return, it is discovered his bride has borne him a child. The officer has, in the meantime, married, quote, a real American bride, unquote, and visits Butterfly with his new wife so that they can take her child from her and raise him as an American. And I'm very sensitive to these issues because the Portia Williams news just came out yesterday. And I just... (laughs) I just can't. (laughs) Anyway, so... (laughs) Who wants to start? <laughs> you know, when you just hear the plot like that, it sounds like a Maury Povich mean, episode. Like, it's so it's, much. It's, it's really does. a mess. It really does. My God. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, this is an A title that is performed regularly in houses around the world. Um, you know, our AAPI siblings have said numerous times (laughs) 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 this is is not cool (laughs) and yet but so the question remains you know looking at it through sort of a civic dramaturg civic dramatological did i say that right probably not (laughs) (laughs) there you go civic civic dramaturgical lens um what do you all think do you think this is something that we can perform in 2021. Is there a way that doesn't actively harm our members of our community? So based on the framing of that particular question, can it be performed? Could it be done? Could someone figure it out? I think absolutely, right? Like I I think there are a lot of smart people out there who take on problematic pieces and and wrestle them to the ground i i think in terms of an answer of who has done that or what would it look like that becomes a much harder thing right like so many of these issues 
are very thorny and very uncomfortable. And, you know, I, I, I do think that it is possible for people to figure stuff like this out. It, I think the question for me with something like Madama Butterfly is A, what is the appetite for that? B, where are people interested in seeing this sort of either reappraisal or recontextualization of it? And then C, who, who may be best positioned to take on something like this, right? So I, I, I do believe that it is possible. I don't, <laughs> I don't know that I am honestly the audience for it though. Like the, the story itself to me is not one that holds a lot of appeal as beautiful as the music is. Um, and honestly, even when the story is retitled Miss Saigon, I find it deeply uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, like it, 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 it's not one of the ones that does it for me. And yet I do think that there is a possibility of capturing aspects of this and presenting them in a way that lays bare everything that is problematic about the actual situation that, you know, Puccini at all has given us and and still have a piece that people are able to leave talking about. I don't know how they're going to feel, but I am also a person who doesn't believe that we don't take on art because it's problematic or uncomfortable, right? I, I think the my particular opinion of a lot of these things are that they are of their own context and we are in a different moment. And if you just like take the example of TV, like something that was produced in 2016 and you watch it today and you hear so many things and you're like, oh God, nobody would say that now. This feels so uncomfortable. And yet it is representative of the moment or of the people who produced it. So do you throw out the baby with the bathwater or do you present it in a way that you confront what it is that is unsavory or problematic or disgusting and, and let that conversation be the thing that happens before or after, hopefully not during the piece, but that you take away. And, and like my inclination is the latter, but I really don't, <laughs> I don't know how you do this piece and then make it something that people would feel comfortable with considering the child bride elements, the mm -hmm. orientalist elements, the, the complete disempowerment of, of women the blatant racism, like there are other pieces of it that I, I don't know what you do with, but I do have faith that there are really brilliant directors and designers, performers and dramaturgs out there who could give us something that would be of this moment that we could take something from. Hmm. So a couple of things kind of come to mind um, and I hear everything that you're saying, Lee, and, and at at the same time, my mind goes to this is taking up space where something better could be. Um, in terms of there's, I mean, there will be a lot of people who who make a similar argument of you know the but the music is so beautiful. Um, then I would say like do it as a concert. Um, I I don't need to see this story happen. 
um, even in a reimagined way. I I have yet to see uh, a version of this reimagined or not that I feel satisfied with, um, or even not enraged by. <laughs> um, so I, especially the the biggest part of this too is you're never going to have a cast that is fully representative of the populations that are supposed to be uh, in this story. Um, that that I feel like it is, and, and not to say that because you couldn't, but because most companies are not going to make the effort to make that possible. Um, and so you ultimately end up with people in really problematic costumes and makeup that they should definitely never be uh, in to begin with, no matter how stylized or really trying to be authentic to to the original style. It also it, it always ends up being something that's that's hugely problematic. Um, and then there's also the the people that are that will say like well you can't change a lot about this opera because then it's going away from the, what the composers and librettists intended. Um, and so kind of advocating for that purity of the art form um, where the works of dead white composers are just untouchable um, or unchangeable in any way. Otherwise, you're, you're doing something that they didn't intend. Um, so from that kind of perspective, the, the opera industry, I do feel like, is generally inflexible when it comes to making substantial changes. And when they do, they're never really satisfactory, in my opinion. And also when the composer's, like, intentions were to do racism. So. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> can we not? <laughs> but also, like, the, the educator side of me is like, no, like, we should be able to talk about it and all of that. But ultimately, like, companies are profiting from problematic art. And I would rather them f give that money to someone who really deserves it. <laughs> Wait, before I give my answer, are either of you keeping it or firing the cannon for sure. I'm, I'm trying to tell what the decision is so far. <laughs> I'm firing it. <laughs> um, as an historian, I'm probably not going to shoot too many things out of the cannon. Um, but that doesn't, but I, I would like to say as a contestant on this show and I'm trying to win the $10 million or whatever the, the little prize is. At I the didn't end. say that there was $10 million. <laughs> However many million it is. You need to, you need to give me a raise if it's $10 million. <laughs> <laughs> I get this $10 million, you might get the raise. Um, okay. If, if we, I guess the way I think of some of it though is that the, the fear of presentism, right? Where we seemingly lose the sense of things in their historical context and because certain things cannot do not speak to us in a given moment the idea of eliminating it from existence is not something i'm i'm crazy about and there are pieces that i have absolutely fallen in love with that when they came out in their own time for whatever reason they didn't fit they didn't meet the moment right so like i don't necessarily think that this should be a 
a piece that nobody ever does again. But to Pablo's point, I think it's a piece that isn't being done correctly or well or satisfactorily. And it should probably not be done until someone can do it satisfactorily. And that's going to shift depending upon the context and the time, if, if that makes sense. So I, I know I sort of skirted around your question, Paige, but I, I, I think that's, the, that's just kind of where I'm landing with it. Like I will stand by the cannon with the lit match, but I don't know if I'm going to drop it on the fuse for this one. <laughs> uh, I am going to uh, fire the cannon um, at least um, temporarily. I'll say for me, I think there's a moratorium on this piece for everybody who is not Asian and cannot speak to the themes. <laughs> that is that that's really it in my mind. Like I'm not interested in seeing it done the traditionally anymore. But there are, um, I think, some of the things that it brings up could certainly still be relevant. But um, it wouldn't be up to a white person to tell that. We don't need any more white uh, Cho-Cho Sands. We don't need <laughs> any more, like, <laughs> we don't need any more white men directing it, especially when this piece is specifically speaking to mm-hmm. a particular type of, like, violence that comes from white men mm-hmm. um, towards Asian women. And so I'm just, there's a moratorium on it for for almost everybody. How about that? That's- <laughs> well, I guess the question is, <laughs> are we keeping it or are we firing the cannon? It sounds like we've got Lee one vote for keep it. Am I right? Mm-hmm. And then two votes for fire the cannon? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I guess we're firing the cannon. (laughs) All right, let's move on to opera number two. So opera number two, Don Giovanni, composed by the legendary Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, librettist Lorenzo Pont. It premiered in October 1787, long time ago. So, it tells the story of a notoriously charming but predatory manipulative... Excuse me. A notoriously charming but predatory and manipulative nobleman, Don Giovanni, who disguises himself in order to seduce and rape Donna Anna, who is engaged to marry Don Ottavio. Anna chases him off and is protected by her father, the Commendatore. During a duel, Don Giovanni kills the old man and then runs off to chase after other women. Eventually, the discarded women of his past unite to speak out against their offender. The opera ends with Don Giovanni burning in hell, dragged down into the underworld by the ghostly statue of the Commendatore. Do we keep it? Do we fire the cannon? What do we do? Who wants to start? I'll start. Ooh, I, I see. I see your face. Start. <laughs> I. Ooh. I don't know. Is this gonna get me hashtag cancel or not? But I, <laughs> I, I personally feel like, and maybe it's because I'm a person who likes like dark comedy. Also, I feel like uh, Don Giovanni is 
a redeemable opera, not a redeemable character. Let's, 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 let's <laughs> no, the opera. I mean, the opera, the opera. <laughs> um, as long as like we don't act like like oh he's just a Casanova type or oh he's just a ladies man. Oh what a cat! Like, right. As, I mean, as long as people aren't doing that, then I can then I can deal with it. I I feel like there's a way to still have like all of it like you can be like no he's like clearly like a predator <laughs> like he's mm-hmm. clearly like abusive and like a- attempted rapist at least like that we can be honest about that and i think still like keep most of what was intended in the piece so mm-hmm. yeah to me keep it keep it yeah <laughs> and hire <laughs> hire more women directors and all over creative team. Well, Thank you. There you go. That's the thing. <laughs> Thank you. That's it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So for for this opera, you know, I uh, for for the Opera Connections podcast uh, for our creative aging programs, I did a ten episode series on this opera, um, and it's an opera that I've performed in myself um, as Don Giovanni. <laughs> And it's, uh, so I, I have conflicting feelings about it, uh, in that I have really positive experiences associated with this, um, and fully recognizing that this, to inhabit that character, um, really does, uh, some work on your mind. (laughs) Um, yeah, because... I mean, obviously, as as an actor, a performer, you, you, you really want to create sort of the most believable and authentic version of this person, character. Um, and that was really challenging to jump in and out of that, um, to be in rehearsal and become this horrible person and step out and be like, talking to the people that I was just, like, throwing things at, or, like, <laughs> and be like, hey, let's go out for a drink, or whatever. Um, but I do feel like, kind of similar to what you said, Paige, I think th- this is not an opera where you ever really side with Don Giovanni as a character. Um, no. it, it's not one where you're, like, Oh yeah, like he he's the good guy. Everyone else is just like in the wrong or they're so sensitive. Yeah. <laughs> You're just misinterpreting what he's saying. <laughs> um no, so so I don't think he's someone who is uh you know misunderstood or redeemable. Um but I do think the opera if if done in a way where it doesn't glorify his behavior, um, mm-hmm. I think can be done in a, w- in, in a responsible way. And again, sort of putting on my, my teaching artist hat on, um, like there is a lot of things you can talk about around the production um, that can give you a good context as to what you're going to see, how, how you can... Um, digest it in a way that that is is responsible and that is 
how we intended to come off. <laughs> so I would say this one is a keeper. Ooh, two keepers. Lee? So I would, um, to piggyback a little bit on what Paige was saying, I also appreciate dark comedy a lot, um, comedy in general. And, you know, there are a lot of satirical elements of Don Giovanni. And I think the, the satire allows us to have a little bit more distance from, you know, the, the unsavory elements because, you know, as uh, Pablo suggested, it's not asking us to side with him in the same way, right? Like our sympathies are not being moved towards him in the same ways that like with uh, Butterfly, it feels like our sympathies are being moved in the direction of Pinkerton at moments and that never feels right. So I feel like with something like Don Giovanni, um, there's just a lot more space for people to separate what's happening on stage and, you know, some of the more ridiculous elements like, you know, someone getting dragged off to hell immediately puts you in a situation where you don't have to take every aspect of it to heart in the same way that something that is written in the Verismo tradition is, is trying to make you feel a certain kind of a, a thing as a human. So I think it's just an easier piece to deal with. That said, um, first, my sophomore year of college, um, Columbia did a production of a piece called Bread and Roses, which was an adaptation of Don Giovanni that sort of took out the rape culture elements and instead put mm. really focused on some socioeconomic elements and made it much more about like unions and that sort of thing. I actually thought it was a, a really, really not enjoyable production, honestly. <laughs> but <laughs> um, <laughs> um, the, the, right. Well, if you were involved in Bread and Roses in 1999. <laughs> wasn't feeling it. <laughs> um, so I would right. say let's keep Don Giovanni um, and blast Bread and Roses out of the <laughs> Bye, Bread and Roses. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> I do have to say, like, one one thing about it that um, where I have some conflict is the fact that this is obviously not the only opera that deals with violence against women. I'm pretty sure most of the canon deals with violence against women. <laughs> I mean, we well. just talked to, we just talked about one at length. So, you know, what what is the value of, like, you know, keeping this narrative from one production to the next and repeating it over and over again. Like it just, it we're just perpetuating this cycle over and over and over again. And although it is, you know, interpreted in so many different ways, it's just, it's a, just such an ugly thing. But. Yeah. And I, and I do think because it is so common in opera, we, we've become numb to it. Audiences have become numb to it. They don't see it. Um, or they don't recognize that pattern that is appearing in every opera that they're seeing. Um, and we as companies don't make an effort to point that out either. So, I think that's because a lot of things, especially in the opera, are presented without critique. And, mm -hmm. and I feel like where the conversation happens, where the critique is, where the, the 
the that piece happens a lot of times are like in production notes that people may or may not read and certainly aren't going to sit with them as they're watching something that's emotionally fraught and and i think that to me is where i mean I, every time i think about an example i want to use about how this can be done it's coming out of theater which sometimes is presented with you know such a heavy-handedness of the you know director or the producers um, imprimatur that you you lose elements of the piece and i think there is a middle ground right where you can present something without the 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 piece saying to you you're supposed to like this right and i'm thinking mm -hmm. about something like again a play susan laurie parks's venus which is about the life of sarky bartman yes. the venus hot and tot mm -hmm. and it's a really complicated and uncomfortable play because it was a complicated and uncomfortable life in some ways that she lived but what is being presented isn't asking you to say we should support the objectification of black women it's presenting it in front of you to show how completely wrong and dangerous and damaging it is, right? And But she doesn't have to say 25 times, this is bad audience, for it to come across, this is really, really bad, right? And I, I think there's just a different responsibility and a different type of creative touch that could be put to use in the opera in some instances. Um, but I don't want to get us onto a, a topic for a mm -hmm. different show. But that, that is some of where I think about this, right? If we're just going to say, let's just put up this piece and not have any kind of conversation around the stuff, you know, it, it could seem like any number of things are, are being, you know, tacitly approved, even when I don't think that that is the intention sometimes. Mm-hmm. I don't know about anyone else, but I'm hearing three keep it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Three keep it. Keep it. <laughs> All right. So we're going to move on to our third and final opera. And that is Scott Joplin's Tremonisha, composed in 1911, finally premiered in 1972, Tremonisha takes place in September 1884 on a former slave plantation in an isolated forest between Texarkana, Texas and the Red River in Arkansas. Tremonisha is a young freed woman. After being taught to read by a white woman, she leads her community against the influence of conjurers who are shown as preying on ignorance and superstition. Tremonisha is abducted and is about to be thrown into a wasp's nest when her friend Remus rescues her. The community realizes the value of education and the liability of their ignorance before choosing her as their teacher and leader. Do we want to keep it? Or do we want to fire the cannon? Spoiler alert, I think I know the answer. <laughs> but <laughs> let's talk about it. Who wants to go first? I will go ahead and say an opera about a group of black people trying to improve their community by getting additional education. I want to fire it out of the cannon immediately. Joking! Um, <laughs> I was going to say, ooh, spicy. Okay. okay. The dude standing by the cannon right now is very confused. <laughs> I, I absolutely love Trimonisha. Um, I, I think it's a really interesting piece. It's it's so different sounding than any other opera I've ever heard. 
Um, it's, it's a piece that I just really, really enjoy and I wish were done a little bit more frequently. And I think it's one of those pieces that needs to be reintroduced to the current opera going population like it was in the 70s with the really fantastic HGO production, which is actually on YouTube. Um, you yes, it is. Watch the whole thing and be entertained. Um, but I think it's a really, really cool piece. Um, and it also has a very fun backstory um, that unfortunately ends with Scott Joplin going bankrupt in his creation of it. But there's a really beautiful aspect um, in terms of how much he put in of his personal life, his personal resources, his personal network to produce something that I think is absolutely really, really beautiful and thought-provoking and makes me happy every time I hear anything from it. And I'll be sure to put a link to uh, the YouTube version of Tree Manisha because everyone should check that out because it's, it's pretty dope. So mine is, I want to start by saying it's definitely a keep it. I'm not saying to fire the cannon. However, <laughs> I have some serious personal uh, concerns about... Um, Trimanisha and uh, maybe one of the problematic aspects that we don't talk about and maybe people recognize it's problematic but we just don't talk about it because we're just so happy to see another black piece <laughs> amongst <laughs> but I'm going to talk about it it's just that the only, the only problem for me is just that it's problematic to portray um, black traditions that some would call superstition um, mm. or more traditional spiritualities, non-Christian mm -hmm. ones, mm -hmm. especially. It's problematic to portray them as being backwards mm -hmm. or ignorant or just based in trying to trick people or you know, as causing the source of chaos or confusion in our community. Um, if it's that's the only part that that gets me about it, because um, I mean I think I can openly like say I am a traditional like practitioner of an yeah. African traditional spiritual system, and so I'm very aware of that like demonization and how it has, in many ways, not benefited our people <laughs> throughout the throughout the years. So. Other than that, I mean, I love like the a focus on education or that like a young black woman can lead. But that could we just get rid of the little, the uh, uh, the little streaks of anti blackness in there? I would just like yes. to get rid of those. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I completely agree. Well, I feel like I can only get give sort of a, a half vote to this because I actually haven't watched the whole thing. I've read about it and I've watched excerpts but I haven't actually watched the opera from beginning to end. Um, but the, so I guess in my definition of the canon, it would be something that is regularly performed, correct? Well, well yeah. yeah. <laughs> so conformed, but also I think maybe a part, something is enough a part of the contemporary consciousness that it could be in a conversation. But I do, I do hear that corrective too about maybe Trimonisha isn't even 
conceivably in the canon, yeah. Yeah, I mean, especially thinking about, like, how how many productions has it received in the last 30-plus years, um, or since that HGO production, it, it would be hard to consider it part of the canon in terms of just for the sake of frequency of performances or productions. Um, that being said, I think, it, like you said, Lee, it is, it is worth bringing back into the general consciousness of... Uh, opera-going audiences. So maybe rather than keep it, you're voting for put it. Put it in the <laughs> game. <laughs> in the game. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> so I think that's two keep it's and a put it. I don't have a, I don't have a sound effect for put it. <laughs> Just here to ruin everything. All right. Either way, it's a big yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that was our game, and our winner is nobody. Me. I get the ten million dollars for being the host. Yay! Because I did such a good job. Thank you. <laughs> no, but seriously, this is a great conversation, and we're gonna keep, um, you know, doing this in the future. I'm sure if there are any particular operas that you all would like us to talk about keeping or firing um write into us at the score at mnopera.org and pablo thanks for being with us today thanks for playing with us absolutely this was so much fun thanks for having well, me well of course we i'm sure we will have you on again at some point at the last minute <laughs> <laughs> but thank you <laughs> thank you for doing that you're you're amazing and brought so much to our audience and and helped us learn and grow well thanks what else can we ask for (laughs) (laughs) all right thanks pablo and we'll be right back all right and we're back for our last segment as always it's time for a little pb and j a little snack for your soul some Pure Black Joy, and Paige, I know you have one this week that is extra joyful. I sure do. (laughs) Hello to all the fellow bison listening to the podcast. You may know about this already. Um, First off, a good uh, H-U, you know. Um, In in case you don't know, Howard University (laughs) College of Fine Arts just officially announced that Felicia Rashad will be the new dean. Yay! Oh my goodness gracious. That is so amazing. And you know, I was just saying to somebody, someone asked me about like if I'd be interested in grad school or if and if I would go to Howard again. And I was like, well, considering that, I mean, A, there's a College of Fine Arts again, and two, now there Felicia Rashad is the dean. What? Yes. Okay. Time for me to go get my master's. Um, <laughs> the time has come, but we are just over the moon and so excited. And I'm also excited by this because it's not like she has um, ever been like disconnected and is just coming out of the blue. Like she visited campus several times while I was there in undergrad wow. and has has been involved and supportive um, as well as her sister Debbie Allen too so I'm just so excited 
so, so excited about this. Um, if you don't already know, uh, Howard University, um, formerly Division of Fine Arts, so it was actually a College of Fine Arts for a while when it first started and then um, got kind of absorbed into the College of Arts and Sciences and was just the Division of Fine Arts and didn't have, you know, the uh, full autonomy of a college. Well, the college has been like reinstated now. Mm, um, I didn't know that. Shout out, yeah, shout out to the late, great Chadwick Boseman because he mm. was a huge part of that of that effort and um, was and a huge part of us. Yes, uh-huh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, also a student, a student of the department, um, of many of the greats who have been through there and then, you know, gave back in the form of pushing for it to really go back to to being um, a college. So we are seeing that dream be fully realized and anyone I know who has been a fine arts student there or who has been just a supporter of that department is overjoyed about it. So, yay! Yay! Well, congratulations to Howard University. Good job. I can only imagine what it would be like to go to the dean's office and have Felicia Rashad (laughs) standing there to greet you. I think I would die. (laughs) But also, as the child of two Howard grads, um, that fills me with glee and a D.C. native. Um, I'm just so excited. Like, that's so cool. That's so amazing. It's like um, the, one of the best possible things that you could want from every perspective, right? She's an mm-hmm. alumna. She's had, like, an extraordinary career and reach, right? You hear so many wonderful things about her. A few years ago, my husband did a film, and Felicia Rashad was his scene partner. And he came back with all of these. Oh my gosh. I know. He had all these selfies <laughs> with her, like they were friends or something. Um, I was kind of like abjectly jealous <laughs> of him in that <laughs> moment. Um, but like this is, I, I think this is absolutely fantastic. And there's a part of me that also wants to like quit my job and run and go get an extra BA in theater because <laughs> I'm not using what I have. So like this is super cool to me as well. So I. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Well, and of course, congratulations to Ms. Rashad. Yes, of course, of course. And I honestly hope this that um that this can become news that like just shines a light on HBCU performing arts programs in general. I would like to see so much more investment in that area. Um, as we know, like HBCU HBCU enrollment is up in general. Uh, like more black students are looking for that particular type of, that particular environment and particular things that HBCU has to offer. And so hopefully more investment in our arts programs comes along along with that. So yay. From for your everything mouth good mean. to the NEA's ears. If any of y'all are listening, yeah. <laughs> well, I think that is a beautiful note to go out into the weekend on. Um, I just want to thank Pablo for joining us, for playing our game with us and imparting all of his knowledge and wisdom. And of course, I want to thank both of my co-hosts for being fun and awesome and smart and cool and all of the things as usual. 
Aw, right back at you. And at work. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I, I think it's like really extraordinary that we get paid to do this. Like that is kind of one of the joys of my life, I have to say. Absolutely. It really it's it's very true. But as usual, we will see you in two weeks. Get at us at the score at mnopera.org with all of your questions, comments, concerns. Subscribe, leave a review, share it with your friends. And also, Paige, you were we were looking at the analytics yesterday. We have 73 listeners in India. Hey. So I just wanted like shout out. To all of our fans in India, we love you. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Bye.